Have you ever tried to imagine what the risen Lord must have looked like after he rose from the dead? There's a couple of clues you get in the scriptures as to what it might have been like. He was a little different, a little better in some ways. What once were wounds were now scars afterwards. The Gospel of John says that he ate fish and sat down and, and ate, so he was still a person, still normal like the rest of us, but somehow more glorious and restored and just better. And I wonder what that was like. I wish I could see that. I want you to imagine with me what it would be like if he stood here with you right now. And the way he's described now, now that he's ascended to heaven, is just amazing. Uh, it was enough that when the Apostle Paul saw him for just a few seconds, just a glimpse at how great he is now that he is glorified, Paul was blinded for three days after that, just at a sight of it. Uh, so magnificent, the Apostle John describes him in the book of Revelations as clothed in a long white robe with a golden sash around his waist and his hair like wool and his feet like burnished bronze. Can you just imagine what this must be like to have this Lord in front of you with his eyes that burn like a flaming fire gazing upon you in pure holiness and radiating with love for you? Imagine something else. What if that Lord, standing right in front of you, had something to say to you? Revelation says that his voice sounds like a trumpet blaring, like a roar of many waters. With that voice, he opens his mouth, and he's got a message for you. And imagine with me one more thing. Imagine that what he's got to say to you is a command. There's something he wants you to do. And with that trumpet voice, with that roaring water voice, he says, here is what I want you to do. Would you be eager to do it? Would you be ready? Whatever it is, I'm hanging on your words, Jesus. Tell me what it is I will do. What if, what if it would take the rest of your life to try to spend accomplishing this thing, and you knew that when you died, you wouldn't be done with it, and you had to hand it on to somebody else to keep doing it? Would you dedicate the rest of your life to whatever it is that he wants from us? Well, I ask you that today because we're going to read a story where almost the exact same thing happens to Jesus' followers. He probably wasn't you know, with feet of burnished bronze at this point, but the disciples disciples of Jesus see in the glorified, resurrected Jesus in front of them, and they fall down and they worship him when they see him. And he gives them a command, a commission, a commission that defines the church, the commission that makes Calvary Baptist what Calvary Baptist is and makes Christians do what they do, a commission that 2,000 years later still binds on us and informs everything that we do here. And if you want to see it, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, if you don't have a pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, grab the dark pew Bible that's in front of you, and start at the back and flip to page 26, and you'll find it there. We're going to read Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20 this morning, and we're going to ask ourselves, what does this risen Lord want from us? In all of this glory, and all of this awe and worship that we have just given him, what does he call back from me now that he's risen from the dead? Let's look there and see it. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority on, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So you may not have seen him with your eyes yet, and you may not have heard his authoritative voice saying these words yet, but it comes to us today with just as much authority from his holy and inerrant word, from his authoritative word this morning, from him right to us. What is it that he wants us to do? He wants us to make disciples of all nations now that he is risen from the dead. A command that ought to define your life, that ought to define my life, and that we are building everything in our church around these words of our risen Lord. But before we get to that command, we got to back up to the beginning of the story and let that story set the tone for what's going on here. Uh, it's really interesting that Matthew connects that commission to the resurrection very strongly. And if you get your Bibles with you and you're looking down, you see a chapter 28 there. There's only three paragraphs, and this is the end of Matthew's gospel. Right? And it starts with the resurrection itself and all Jesus does after he rises from the dead is he tells the ladies, go and, go and get my brothers and tell them to meet me at this mountain in Galilee. And then there's another paragraph where there's this conspiracy and the Jewish leaders try to cover up the fact that he rose from the dead. And then Jesus meets them at that mountain where he said he would meet them and gives them this command. So in Matthew, that's all that happens after Jesus rises from the dead. Now, if you've been to church a lot, you probably know there are a lot of stories in the Bible that happen after Jesus rises from the dead. You might be thinking of how he reinstated Peter around a campfire on a beach or how he walked with two disciples on the road. He did all sorts of things after he rose from the dead. But Matthew, in his gospel, having access to all that information, having been there for most of it or maybe even all of it, he chooses just to include that. As a way of saying, if there's only one thing you knew about the risen Lord, if there's only one set of his words, one quote of his that you want to know about, it's this one. It's this commission that he has given to tell the church just exactly what it is that he wants us to do. So that's why Matthew structures it like that. They meet there at the mountain, just like he said he was going to. He's right there, and they worship him. And what they do in verse 17 is, is really important. Look down at verse 17. It says that some of them worshipped him, but others were, others were doubtful. Right? So, so there was doubt even there, even as they saw him risen from the dead. Right? And in that, we've got a little window into how doubt works. One of the ways you can learn from Bible stories is to try to identify with some of the characters. And if you feel similar things, you've been through similar things, to identify with what they're going through and see if you can't learn from that. And here Matthew gives us this window into what doubt can look like sometimes. Isn't it interesting that these people aren't doubting because of a lack of evidence, are they? He's standing right in front of them. No, they're doubting because it's such an amazing thing, right? People don't just rise from the dead. And so even though they're seeing it right before them, they're saying, no, this can't be, this isn't how life works. People die and they don't come back. This doesn't fit into my grid for life. And in that, we've got a window to the doubter that's in each one of us. And I know that there are probably some here that don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I want to ask you something. What's the real reason? Is it because you think there's a lack of evidence? Or is it more like these folks that it's just such an amazing thing that you're thinking to yourself, no, people don't do that. That's, that's too incredible. I can't believe that because it's unbelievable. 
That's usually the reason we refuse to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's not because of a lack of historic evidence. There is actually no other event in ancient history that has more historic evidence supporting it than the resurrection of Jesus. There are actually historic reports of more than a dozen men, almost all the male characters in these stories, wind up going to their grave insisting that they saw him risen from the dead, and it's on record. These are men that didn't have to die, men that, that, are, that are taken, some of them crucified, some of them stoned. Almost every single male character that you read about in these stories winds up being killed for their faith, but not because they believe in Jesus. They don't go to their grave saying, I believe in him. They'll go to their grave saying, I saw him risen from the dead. People don't do that for a hoax. People don't go to their graves insisting on a hoax. And they don't do that just for faith either. No, no, these guys, they did it saying they had seen him. On top of that, 15 years later, Paul writes in a public document a list. It's in 1 Corinthians. We could read it here, but we won't spend a ton of time on it. A list of people that Jesus had appeared to. And at one point, he says he appeared to 500 people, most of whom were still alive 15 years later. And he's like, you can go and ask. He gets away with saying that in a public document because there are that many people walking around who had seen the risen Christ. It's not for a lack of historic evidence that we won't believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's because it's an unbelievable thing. And Matthew gives you just a little window into that when he says that there were people there that day who saw him with their own eyes and still doubted. That is still some of how it works even today. Now, if you move on a little bit, there's a reason that I spent time on that, on whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead, because what he's about to do here is he's about to build on it, right? He's, he's, he's risen, they have seen him risen, and now with the words that Jesus says, he's going to build them on the fact that they're risen. Let's look at what he says next in verse 18. Because he is risen, he says these chilling words in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Can you see why it matters whether he rose from the dead or not? If he didn't really rise from the dead, he can't say that, right? You can't walk around saying all authority in heaven on earth is mine if you didn't do something like that. But now that he has risen from the dead, he's got the authority to say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the first question you need to ask about life if you're not totally sure about whether he rose from the dead isn't whether you like some of Jesus' teachings. It isn't whether you believe the Bible is true or not. The very first question I think you can ask is, did he really rise from the dead or not? Because if he didn't, well, then his commands don't really have a whole lot of weight, and you can do as you please. But if he did then all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so his every word matters. So your whole life can hinge on whether or not he really rose from the dead. This also matters for another group of you that are here today. I know there are some here today that doubt whether Jesus really rose at all, and there are many here today who believe that Jesus rose from the dead and have staked their whole lives on that claim and lived their whole lives revolving around his teaching and his word. But there's another group here, I know, that, that believes he rose from the dead, and if, you, if I asked you, you'd say, yeah, I believe he rose from the dead, but your life isn't ordered around his teaching. Like, you're not living like he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So you believe he's risen, 
but you're not living as if he's got all authority in heaven and on earth. You're not regularly meeting with his people and worshiping him in awe and reverence. You're not uh, doing everything you can to participate in his mission. You're not ordering your life around his commands. You're not living in reverence of him. No, you're living like he doesn't have all authority in heaven and on earth. And if that's you, I just want to give you a warning today. You know, you believe that he rose from the dead and you're setting yourself up to hear from him one day you knew that I had all authority in heaven and on earth, and yet you still ignored me. That is not what he wants from us. No, he says all authority is his. And if he really rose, we have got to follow him with all of our lives. And so I know you probably came here hoping for like a great Easter service, hoping the preacher wouldn't step on your toes about the fact that you don't usually come to church. I'm sorry, I know I had to do that. But here's the thing, I hope that this is more than that for you. I hope that this is the Easter when you realize that you've got to live your whole life around his teachings because if he rose from the dead, he has got all authority in heaven and on earth and over you as well. And there is no better life than living your whole life under his teaching. So I call you today and he calls you today to come and be one of his disciples. He's got all of that authority. So no matter who you are, these words matter to you then. For those of you here or somewhere else week after week living under Jesus's teachings, these words that we're about to read mark what your church does and the mission that your church has. For those of you that aren't totally sure whether he rose from the dead or not, or believe that he didn't rise from the dead, if you were to come to the conclusion that he did, and if he did rise from the dead, these are the words we ought to live by. These are the words that define us and tell us who we are. So here it is. Here is our mission. What makes us Calvary Baptist? What is our church's number one priority? Let's look at verses 19 and 20 together. It's go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. If you are a Christian, that is what you do. That is your mission. And if you go to a church of Christians that follows Jesus, that is what your church does, and that is your church's mission. You could you could sum this up a whole lot of different ways. I mean, people have summed it up different ways. Uh, one, of the, one of the better ways to sum it up is just to distill it down to two words, to the words making disciples. And a lot of churches do that. They say their mission is to make disciples. And the reason they do that is because of the way this thing is grammatically structured. Now, if you're, a, if you're an English teacher, you're going to want to know that the word make disciples is an imperative in this sentence, and all the other verbs are participles. Now, if you're not an English teacher or a high school student, let's be honest, you forgot what a participle was. And so what you need to know then is that all the other verbs like go and baptizing and teaching those other verbs in there, they all tell you what it looks like to make disciples because this thing is structured that make disciples is the main command in this thing. So what does the church do? It makes disciples. And so you see a lot of churches that say, what's our mission? We make disciples. That's what we do. A two-word mission, we make disciples of Jesus. And so what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who follows all of Jesus' teachings about life and about who he is and about eternity, who follows all of his commands. The greatest two are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. A disciple is someone who has dedicated their lives to learning and living the teachings of Jesus. 
And the way that you can begin to do that is through what we call the gospel, the good news. And the good news is very simply that he came to this earth, God as man walked on this earth with us to bear our sufferings and our sorrows, lived a perfect life without any sin at all, and then offered himself up freely on our behalf, right? Because if his great commands are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves, we, we look at ourselves and say, well, I don't, I don't do that at all, right? I don't, I don't love the Lord my God with all of my heart. And I blow up at my neighbors. I don't love my... I, I, the way I treat people is nothing like the way he calls me to treat people. And what Jesus chose to do was willingly offer his own life, that's why he died on the cross, in the place of sinners, to pay for our sin. And so all those who wish to come follow him can receive his forgiveness, receive his payment for our sins, and begin to live a life that follows him as he makes us new and into followers of him. Someone who has done that then gets baptized to show that their death and their resurrection belong to Jesus, right? His death, his resurrection is now ours, and they begin to follow him with their whole life. That's called being a disciple, being a learner, someone who learns Jesus ways. And what we do as a church is we make disciples. Once you're in, once you're a disciple, you get in on the mission and you start making disciples of other folks. And we as a church baptize people who come to Christ and begin to follow him. And it's one of our favorite things to do. Then it says, after we've baptized them, we, we teach. So we've got a six word mission statement here at Calvary. We've started to kind of paste everywhere. Uh, and the first two words are make disciples, and then the second two words are training disciples, right? Making disciples, training disciples, and there's two more words I'll get to in a little bit. Because the next thing he says here is we begin to, as he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we, we put those words in our mission because we believe that for the last 150 years or so, the church has kind of lost track of what it means to make disciples. And so we just want clarity on what it looks like to make disciples. Part of it is training, teaching people to observe all that he has commanded us. For the last 150 years or so, the church has gone from making disciples to just trying to fill up the room, right? Just like, come here and be part of our church and check out the card, and we don't really know what to do with you after that. Maybe we'll baptize you, or maybe we'll just, we, we, we don't really know. And that's as far as a lot of churches have gone in the last century and a half or so. And so we're trying to recover this picture of what Jesus says it means to make disciples. Part of it is teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. And so we do things like Sunday school, where we sit down together and we open the Bible together and we say, what are Jesus' ways as they're taught in this piece of the Bible? Uh, older Christians do things like getting together with younger Christians and keeping a text thread going with them and checking in on them and doing all they can to invest in them and mold their lives. Parents work as much as they can to raise their children in Jesus' ways because a part of this commission is teaching people to observe everything that he has commanded us. And so the third and fourth words then in our mission are training disciples. We make them and we train them. There is one more aspect of making disciples that's here in this text, and it's also in other pieces of scripture that we've got to talk about. Uh, the very first word in this command is go, right? Go and make disciples. And so part of making disciples of Jesus is you've got to go somewhere to do it. And 
Some of us go to the supermarket, right? And some of us go to the restaurant, and some of us go to the next town over to plant a church, and some of us go to the other side of the world. It causes everybody to go to different places, but everybody goes, and from the other side of it, if you're going, the church's job is to send you there. So it's a two-part thing, right? Everyone's called to go, and everyone's called to be a part of sending everyone else there. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And here's what I'm getting to. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So part of the church's job then is to send people to go and make disciples, to send you to go and make disciples. A warrior takes an arrow and sharpens it so that he can launch it, right? He has something he plans to do with it. And all of this training we are doing of you, all of these Sunday school lessons, all of this mentoring, everything that we are doing to try to train you, it's so we can send you somewhere to do something. A child takes a paper airplane and folds it up and creases it just right. Or maybe a really cool dad takes a paper airplane and folds it up, creases it just right. Not just to look at it, though, right? No, he folds it up so he can throw it. Right? He's getting it ready for something. And in the same way, we are training you so that we can send you, whether it's to the job where you already work so that you can make disciples where you work, or whether it's to the next town down the road to plant a church, or whether it's to the other side of the world. Some of you we hope to send so far that we have to FaceTime to keep up with you, and in your end of the world it's morning, and in our end of the world it's night, and we just have to put up with that because we've sent you so far for the sake of the gospel. This church even sent one of its own pastors that we love to the other side of the world, to China, to be a missionary there, and we hurt when he left but we were glad to do it. Why? Because we send disciples of Jesus all over the world to make disciples of all nations. So those are the fifth and sixth words of our mission then. We make disciples, we train disciples, and we send disciples. That is what the risen Lord has called from us. That is what he wants from us here at Calvary Baptist. So I know that for most of you here, you know that I'm the new guy here, and some of you guys are new also, so you may or might not, may not know that, but I'm, I'm new as well. And when, when a new pastor comes in, there's all these questions, right? Like, what direction is he going to take us? What are we going to do? Is my, is my favorite ministry going to go away? Is this going to get changed? All kinds of questions, right? And, and the details of those are going to take forever to answer as we work through them together. But I can tell you this, big picture, what we are going to do, what we are going to focus on, as long as I've got the breath to proclaim it, we're going to focus on making disciples of Jesus, training disciples of Jesus, and sending disciples of Jesus. That is a mission that I can testify I would lay down my whole life for. It is a mission that has uprooted Emily and I twice to different parts of the country. It is a mission we would do whatever we've got to do to accomplish. And for you today, I hope that whatever it is you love about coming to church here, whatever it is you love about church life, if it came down to it, you'd be willing to lose it to accomplish this mission because this mission is worth more than anything we hold dear about church life. I can't tell you yet what that looks like in detail, but I can tell you big picture, that's what it is. We're gonna make disciples, we're gonna train disciples, and we're going to send disciples. 
I want to talk to others of you for a minute, too. I know this is a Sunday where a lot of people who believe in Jesus come to church, even though they haven't been coming to church for the rest of the year, and even though they aren't really following him with the rest of their lives. I know I already talked to you once, and you're probably thinking, like, man, is he going to step on my toes again? Like, ah, you know, but here we go. I'm going to do it again. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you believe he's got all authority. And what I want to call you to today, then, is to join us on this very mission. I'm not just calling you to come back next Sunday. I'm not just calling you to come back for a month. I'm calling you to get in on this mission for us because we need help doing this. We need to make disciples of as many people as we can here in Greenwood and South Indy and in Whiteland. And we can't do it without help. So join us on the mission. Look at these words where he says, this is what I want for my people. This is what I want from those who believe I have risen from the dead. And join us on this mission because there is no greater joy in life than having him with you and being on his mission. So finally, I haven't actually even gotten to my favorite part of this text yet. Let's look at the very last few words of what he says. Very last sentence in verse 20. He says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what he said so far, I mean, it's huge and it's scary, right? Like, some people, probably some people in this room, are called to the other side of the world to make disciples of him. That is frightening. Some people are called to share the gospel with their coworker. And let's be honest, that's scary, right? You don't want to broach that. You don't want to risk what that could do with your relationship. That is scary. How could Jesus call you to do something that is so scary? How could Jesus call you to invite that waiter or waitress that you know really well to church with you and risk just blowing up the whole rapport that you've blown with? How could Jesus call you to something so scary? I'll tell you how he can call you to doing that. He's promised that as you do it, he is with you. He's right there at that table in that restaurant when you're talking to that waiter. He's right there helping you accomplish the mission. You can go to the next town and try to plant a church. He's right there with you even to the end of the age. You can go to the other side of the world if you want to on this mission. And he is right there with you. There's no greater joy and no greater comfort and no greater source of boldness to accomplish this mission than to know this fact. So let's just let's leave it there knowing He is with us. How can he call us to something so difficult, something that's going to be so hard to accomplish as a church and has been hard throughout the years for us? He's with us. And how can he call you to be a part of it? He is with you too. Let's pray.